You strive to innovate, to propel payments forward. But what if you could do even more, access more people, and add more value? With Discover Global Network, you can. Accepted in more than 200 countries, with over 270 million cardholders around the globe, we help you grow further, faster. As the world's fastest-growing payments network, see just how much progress we can make together. Discover Global Network. Accelerate progress. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. In recent months, there's been a mood of spring awakening in Washington as the Biden administration began its promised departure from the politics of chaos and doom so emblematic of Donald Trump's four years in office. Yet that there has always been a lingering menace, a reminder that just over the horizon lurks something more fearsome and dangerous. Well, the mood in Washington, D.C. is really one of people feeling on edge, feeling traumatized, feeling scared about the future. From the rows of razor wire and cement blockades in front of the Capitol building to the presence of National Guard troops, Washington is a city of striking contrast. There is, of course, the promise of healing, a vaccine to end the pandemic. There is a Democratic Congress and Senate with the will to pass truly transformative and progressive legislation unseen in a generation. Infrastructure, the environment, voting rights, all of it is within our grasp. So today, I'm proposing a plan for the nation that rewards work, not just rewards wealth. It builds a fair economy that gives everybody a chance to succeed and is going to create the strongest, most resilient, innovative economy in the world. It's not a plan that tinkers around the edges. It's a once in a generation investment in America, unlike anything we've seen or done since we built the interstate highway system and the space race decades ago. Simultaneously, though, there is a darkness. Two mass shootings in Boulder and Atlanta. The terribly racist and retrograde voter bills being passed in state legislatures across the country. And the reminder always of the violence that invaded our capital on January 6th. We are all on edge, tired, anxious, and worn the fuck out. Whatever brief idol we felt was punctured on Friday with yet another violent attack in Washington, D.C. Not quite three months after the deadly storming of the Capitol, a car came careening midday onto the Capitol grounds, slamming into two Capitol police officers, killing one instantly and leaving another badly injured. And it is with a very, very heavy heart that I announce one of our officers has succumbed to his injuries. This time, the source of the violence was not an angry pro-Trump mobber, but a lone driver, 25-year-old Noah Green. Armed with a knife, he had recently told friends he had left his job and had afflictions. After crashing his car and menacing officers, he was shot and killed. On his Facebook page, which has since been taken down, Green described himself as a supporter of the Nation of Islam's leader, Louis Farrakhan, and said that he had been struggling through the last few months of the pandemic. 
He said he had recently left his job and been faced with fear, hunger, loss of wealth, and diminution of fruit. We seem to be trapped in a never-ending loop of senseless violence with tiny reprieves that last just long enough to lull us back into a false sense of normality, only to be re-traumatized with the next violent act. And so for every small step forward, we must wait with trepidation for the next shoe to drop. For every vaccination, there is the resurgence of a deadlier, more contagious virus. For every piece of progressive legislation, there is regressive backlash. State houses run amok with adherence of Trumpism. They want you to be required to have something called a COVID passport. And this, this would mandate your ability to be able to travel, your ability to be able to go to events, your ability to be able to buy and sell. And I asked the question earlier today, is this something like Biden's mark of the beast? Because that is really disturbing. Well, let's analyze that. You see, it's still the same thing. It's still fascism or communism, whatever you want to call it. It is a mean season we have entered, folks, and I fear there is no end, not at least in the short term. We live in a political and economic world that is a zero sum and winner take all. It's getting to the point where I feel safer under house arrest than I do outside, uncertain of what comes next. In 1968, Robert Kennedy, after his own brother was gunned down and just before he met his own end from an assassin's bullet, stood before a crowd anguished over the killing of Martin Luther King and lamented the era's senseless violence. Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. Indeed, we seem to fulfill the vision of Yeats. He is speaking, of course, of Yeats' poem, Second Coming, which has found new urgency in our own time. What rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Yeats wrote this in 1919 in the aftermath of the horror of the First World War and a global pandemic that cost millions of lives. Both his pregnant wife and his daughter were afflicted and countless friends died. But it is just as true today. Trump has become our own rough beast for the ages and his MAGA faithful seems driven by a bottomless thirst for violence and political nihilism. Despite our best efforts to move forward out of the darkness, we are being stymied by forces of chaos and the invisible enemy that is the virus. For some, the only answer becomes spraying an AR-16 into a crowd of innocents or turning their car into a deadly weapon. Yeats writes, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere, the ceremony of innocence is drowned, the best lack of conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. I read Yeats's collected poems while sitting in Otisville prison. They were given to me by a close friend who believed I might find solace in Yeats's prose. I did, and now I am passing his words on to all of you with an urgent plea to get mad, to get real fucking mad, get involved and get active to hold the beast at bay. This is the end. 
And now for today's main event. Despite my feelings of abject doom, there are still moments of hope, especially when I look at what's happening inside the Biden White House. Biden, in his uniquely empathetic way, is selling the return of big government to the American people. After four years of Trump and a sense, especially during the pandemic, that it was every man for himself, People are ready for some help, and Biden wants to deliver it to them with a bow on top. First, there was the COVID relief plan, but that was just an appetizer compared to his plan for infrastructure, the environment, and other legislation that promises to truly transform this nation. In many ways, it's the work that was left unfinished from the Obama administration. But first, it must get past Darth Vader in the Senate. Mitch McConnell has already signaled that infrastructure is dead on arrival. Sure, there is a higher taxes aspect of it all, but one gets the sense that the Republicans and Mitch himself are not willing to give Biden and the Democrats such a major legislative triumph without a real fight. To help break down the road ahead on these transformative plans, I reached out to the New York Times bestselling author and columnist Anand Garadis. His book, Winner Takes All, is a trenchant analysis of how power is wielded in this new gilded age. Written in 2018, at the height of this latest tech bonanza, Garadis watched uncomfortably as these new elites positioned themselves as the solution to our world's problems. In the end, it was merely a dodge to help them protect the status quo, their status quo. He describes himself as a flamethrower and his own voice is often heard most loudly on MSNBC. He joins us today to speak about this return to big government and what the future will look like if this legislation passes. So let's listen now to that conversation. If we can, let's actually talk about President Biden's bold and transformative infrastructure plan, because the truth is, it's obviously something that's extremely important. It's something that I spoke with Trump about going back to 2015, which he decided not to do for whatever the reason may be. Now, Biden's infrastructure plan, maybe because it would help people, <laughs> probably, right? It's a plan that harkens back to something from uh, Lyndon Bain Johnson's Great Society or even Roosevelt and the WPA. This idea of big government doing something transformative for the country and is also really sorely needed as our roads are falling apart and our bridges are actually dropping you know, into the waters. But if you would talk to me about what you know of the plan and its benefits, both as an economist, but also the political benefits and the pitfalls, because, you know, of course, we always have the guys, you know, the dark overlord, Mitch McConnell, has said that there's absolutely no way that this is going to pass. Discuss this with me and my listeners. Yeah, I mean, just to clarify, I am not an economist and I would, would never become an economist. But, you know, I think Biden's infrastructure plan, like the rescue uh, plan that preceded it, is significant on two levels. The First level is just the immediate material benefit it would provide to the country, to people, to people in pain, uh, to people out of work, to people who have not just been out of work in COVID, but have been 
chronically uh, underemployed for you know years and years, which is a growing uh, fraction of our labor force. Um, but there's a second level, even just beyond the economic benefit, that we should talk about, which is government, the idea of government as a redemptive force that can make people's lives better is coming back, is making a comeback, not after four years, uh, not after a decade, after 40 years. In 1981, Ronald Reagan was sworn in to the presidency, a government job, by the way, drawing a government salary, and decided his entire project was to malign and defang government. Government is not the solution. Government is the problem, was his opening salvo, right? Always, always a little nerve-wracking when a person taking a job tells you that the job they're taking is worthless. It may be just that they are, are worthless. Um, so, so Reagan sets in, and for 40 years, we have continued, long after Reagan's death, to live in Reagan's world, live in a world of assumptions in which government is bad. You heard your former boss and friend, you know, say government should be run like a business. Only people, you know, who've un understood business can run government. Um, and what Joe Biden is doing, and, and I got to say, I was a skeptic of Joe Biden. So I say this, you know, with, with surprise, is someone who was historically a moderate, cautious Democrat, who actually voted for some of Reagan's policies in 1981, Joe Biden did, um, has come around, it seems, to the view that government is not only necessary to tinker around the edges and do this and that, but that government should be advocated for as the sole force capable of doing big change and saving people from big crises and, and advancing our biggest shared priorities. And I think in that way, that the ship turning that you're seeing philosophically here is as or more significant as the real money that's going to go into bridges and roads and people's pockets. Yeah, but we do need the money that's going into the bridges, the roads, the tunnels, and so on. You know, one of the things that I remember speaking with Trump about when we first decided that he was going to actually enter the race in 2015 was that the very first bill that should come out of the White House under this new administration, the Trump administration, was supposed to be an infrastructure bill. And this is where Trump has some benefits, to, that there were some positives to him. But the problem is, while it may be a good idea, he's just the wrong messenger on so many levels. You may recall that Trump went ahead and he went to the United Arab Emirates. And then he had a press conference when he was there touting that he managed to get the Emirates and the Gulf Coast countries to pony up $250 billion of investment in U.S. infrastructure. And then he did the same in China, and he did the same in Japan. And he talked about how he was going to float a bunch of government bonds with a 10 times, with a 10 times multiple, where we would have $7.5 trillion of infrastructure money to put back into the country, in essence, to rebuild it. Now, that's a great idea, and it's something that I would certainly have been in favor of. But if you notice, like every other bill that Trump worked on, short of the ones that he signed by executive order, they all managed to fail simply because, number one, there's no bipartisan support for any of it. None of it really made any sense. It sounded good, but it after sounding good, there was absolutely no, there was no legitimacy 
to what he was talking about, having foreign countries investing in our infrastructure. It didn't make sense. How does Biden's transformative infrastructure plan differ in terms of concept? Where's the money coming from? What's your thoughts on any of it? I mean, I think it has nothing in common with what you just described because it's, you know, legitimate public policy as opposed to uh, someone trying to run a mafia state. You know, at the end of the day, uh, your boss was never interested in the well-being of a single person in this country besides himself. I'm not even sure he's interested in the well-being of his wife and children. Um, so it's no surprise. Uh, I, I, I'm not surprised that his infrastructure week never happened. Maybe infrastructure week uh, from Trump is still coming. Who knows? But I, I'm not surprised it didn't, it didn't happen. You know, I, I think for a lot of us, actually, nothing in those four years was a surprise. I saw very clearly who he was as soon as he was visible to me as a public figure in you know 2015. Um, so I don't think you can compare a a kind of criminal uh, mafia state, you know, head of a head of a crime family trying to operate as president, um, doing an infrastructure plan with someone else. Because it's not really an infrastructure plan. It's all just part of the lubricant of the crime family engine. Um, the Biden plan is financed, as far as I understand, by, you know, uh, a mix of the United States government spending. They're, 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 they're going to do some amount of deficit spending, I would guess. We don't know yet. They're still working it out. They've talked about raising taxes, corporate taxes from 21 to 28 percent, you know, bringing it back up to some of uh, the level it was before, not all the way. Um, but also there is a real change in this country around, um, you know, a comfort with deficit spending and a comfort with instead of going to foreign dictatorships and asking for, you know, corrupt money uh, in exchange for, for hookers or whatever Trump got from them, uh, the American people actually investing in themselves uh, is a much more, uh, much more you know, rational uh, way of doing public policy. Yeah, which, well, I don't know so much about Trump and the hookers and so on. Uh, I can tell you I that. I thought you know all about that. Well, I do. Unfortunately, many people uh, who have pretty good profiles in social media made up the whole story about the infamous P-tape. Uh, rest assured that if, in fact, that P-tape existed, I would own it. And everybody in this world would have already seen it. I don't care if I would have put it on pay-per-view. Right. Or I would have just done it on on some television show or just even streamed it. You could rest assured that that tape would have been put out there because um, it belongs out there. If, in fact, it was it was real, which unfortunately it's not uh, to the, you know, um, dismay of many, many people. But I do want to ask you, Anand, um, much of Biden's economic policy and his driving philosophy behind these giant programs is really built on the precept that deficits are no big deal. And I, I, actually, I actually have a problem with this. Uh, and much of this thought is based on the work of— Why do you have a problem with this, based on what you have a problem well, with? Well, based on the problem with running the deficit and keep running the deficit and keep running the deficit. Because I do truly believe that there's going to come a day that you're going to have to pay that deficit back. And as— That's not, that's not how it works. Though. Are you familiar with modern monetary theory? I, I am, but— but you do actually have to pay it back when 59 cents of every dollar that's being earned is going into paying the interest on the deficit. It's just it's a burden on 
our children, grandchildren, and the future of this country. Now, to, whom do you, to whom do you have to pay it back? Well, you, you have to pay it back to yourself. And that's the problem. You can't, you, no business. You see, I look at America. But don't, isn't this money printed? It, it, it is money printed, but the money that's printed has to have something that it's backed by. And it's backed by, of course, the full faith and credit of the United States government. And the problem is if you're so far into the red that the full faith and credit is not really worth anything, and that puts us at a disadvantage economically. But let me just finish with this other thought, because much of the thought is based on the work of Stephanie Kelton, who you profile in the latest drop of um, your newsletter, The the Inc. Um, In it, you describe Kelton's belief that the United States government is capable of investing far more than it ordinarily does, or than most people think it should, in making people's lives better. And then she goes on and argues that much of this resistance to doing so is grounded in outdated gold standard thinking that has no place in reality today. So if you would, before we get into our conversation, describe for my listeners, first of all, who is Stephanie Kelton and what role she plays in the Biden administration and how her thinking will factor into programs like infrastructure and other transformative legislation. Stephanie Kelton is an economist. And again, I don't want to speak for her because she you know, speaks much better for herself, but she's an economist who is a champion of a larger movement in economics called modern monetary theory. Uh, I would actually also situate her as one of the leading uh, economists beyond MMT who are just rethinking some of the basic assumptions of economics more broadly. A lot of these important economic thinkers who are pushing the field are women, um, as it happens, who were maybe not listened to as much in prior times and, and are being listened to now, Mariana Mazzucato, um, Kate Raworth, and others. And Stephanie's focus is trying to debunk this notion that the deficit uh, is something we should have a primary worry about. Remember, when we're doing policy, we worry about all kinds of things. I don't don't think Stephanie's saying it's something we should not ever think about. I think she's suggesting that it should not be the overriding lodestar or a one, two, or top three thing. As you know, Michael, when something like an F-18 airplane is being developed— no one brings their CPA to the debate. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, the F-18 will cost this much to develop over 20 years, right? And we should do that because it will save us this much plus one in XYZ. No one does that. They just say we need the F-18, right? No one justifies it as something that's going to pay for itself. They just say we need that plane, right? When, when, when we have to have you know hundreds of billions of dollars spent on the intelligence community. No one says, here's the return that we're getting on that, right? Here's how they performed last year. Here's how they performed the year before. Here's the return. No one does that. We just say, the the people, you know, make a request for appropriation, say, this is what we need. No one has any way of calculating whether we're getting, getting what we pay for. And we, the public, underwrite that. What I would understand, in my words, not Stephanie Kelton's, her to be saying, is that surely F-18 planes and foreign wars and intelligence gathering are not the only activities so important to the national life that we should keep our CPA in the back room when we're making those decisions, right? I'm sure you would go to any length to educate and protect your children. Well, what Stephanie Kelton is saying is the nation 
should go to any length, just as you would, to educate and protect its children. I'm sure at some point you would check in with your CPA about educating your children. It's not like you're never going to listen to them, right? But when you are deciding what your children need, I'm sure your CPA is not your first call, right? You, you've got to take another job to help your kids. You'll do that. You've got to make more money. You'll do that. If you got to, you know, um, figure out some savings or investment vehicle, you'll do that. The first thing is like the thing, right? And then whether you can pay for it and how you pay for it comes second. And what I understand Stephanie to be doing is to try to get us to ask the right questions, which is what do we need to have a country that is flourishing, that has dignity, um, that provides opportunities for people to live the fullest version of their lives um, that turns the American dream into something that doesn't just happen in Europe, but actually happens in America at scale. Um, and at some point we do have to figure out uh, things like budgets and things like how much deficit spending is okay in terms of not triggering excessive inflation. These are all debates we can have, but they are secondary, profoundly secondary to the question of what it takes to have a flourishing society. And when you start the conversation with fiscal discipline and deficits, what you end up doing is what America has done for the last 40 years, which is plutocracy, which is oligarchy. And you use a, a kind of cover, a veneer of seriousness and fiscal responsibility and, 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 and caution to actually just mask policy that is favorable to billionaires. Hey, it's Michael Cohen here. If you're like me, you spend most of your day online, conducting business, talking to friends and loved ones, or searching out the latest information. Well, I'm here to tell you, be careful. Cybercriminals are taking advantage of the COVID-19 pandemic to scam people into stealing their money and personal information. They attempt to exploit people's hardship due to the loss of a job or reduced hours with phishing emails and fake websites that falsely inform recipients that they are entitled to financial support while stealing their information. Phishing emails are just one of the many ways cybercriminals can try to take what's yours. Simply click a bad link in an email and it could give them access to your passwords or personal information. The all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to have protection in the digital world. Device security blocks cybercriminals from stealing personal information on your devices. VPN with bank-grade encryption helps keep the information you send over Wi-Fi safe. And LifeLock identity theft protection monitors your information and alerts you to potential threats to your identity. Now, no one could prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But if you have Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can opt into cyber safety. Sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to Norton.com slash Cohen. That's 25% off Norton.com slash Cohen. And as you learned up close. It's time America stops working for billionaires and pretend billionaires. No, I'm not going to disagree with you on that. And I, I, I acknowledge what you're saying. For example, the pandemic relief package. Obviously, if we were going to our accountant and he told you that right now you're in a $28 trillion deficit, you really can't afford the $2.2 trillion relief package. But 
as you rightfully stated, you have to take care of your of your citizens and you have to make sure that people have food uh, on their table and that they have a roof over their head with electricity and so on. So I'm all for that. However, the analogy with the F-18s, the way that government justifies the spending on its military is not for a return of investment. They look at it in terms of security for the nation. And, you know, that's all just part of the massive budget that, you know, is the United States of America. My point, as we were talking before. Right. All I'm saying is education belongs to be that same treatment. And it sure does. I believe that we should be improving uh, education, and, I, and I'm, I'm all for it. However, there comes a point in time that this budget of ours is not predicated on education, nor is it predicated on infrastructure. There's obviously many more aspects to our budget than just these handful of line items. One of the biggest problems is somebody does ultimately have to pay everything back, whether it's the devaluation of the dollar or, or you know, whether we're going to default like other countries have. Somebody does have to pay it back. I have never spoken to a serious economist who's saying the things you're saying. So I, I suggest you talk to some of them, and I, I'm not one of them, but I, I would encourage you to talk to some of them. I think I think this stuff was really current, cutting edge in the 70s. It's just not cutting edge economic thinking today. So you just don't think that we're going to ever need to pay back any of the debt? What about the foreign countries that are holding bonds? Do you have, do you have, have, you, ever had a mor- have you ever had a mortgage? Have I ever had a mortgage? Yes, of course. Yeah. And you realize it's possible to live, I mean, you could have 30-year mortgages, but you could sell out, you could always be in a state of mortgage, in it, right? You could always be living in a million-dollar house that you owe a bunch on your whole life, right? You could, you could set it up that way or keep doing that, right? That's true, but there comes a point. Well, I can't, that is not different from a country borrowing at an interest rate that it works for, the, for its... That's the problem, though, not... We don't make enough money within which to pay. That's, so I'll use your example as the mortgage. Yes, so long as you could pay your mortgage, regardless of what the interest rate may be, so long as you could pay it, yeah, you could keep floating that mortgage ad infinitum. But what happens when you can't? That's where it becomes a problem, and that's why I'm saying that what we're doing to our children and our grandchildren. On old paradigms. And, but, you know, you should—, you should... Nominate yourself for, you know, Treasury Secretary under Biden, and let's see. Maybe, maybe your way prevails. Well, I don't know. I'm just trying to be fiscally responsible. But let me ask you this question, then. How will this get— There are more get... important imperatives. That's my, that's my point. Such as? Having a country where most people can enjoy the dignity and safety and, uh, and quality of life that you and I enjoy. Right, and I agree with that. I'm just not so sure that they're— parallel to one another, or even, I just, I believe they are parallel, actually, to one another, um, but they don't intersect. And I do believe that you still have to be fiscally responsible as a country, and at the same time, to be good to your citizenry. I just don't, I don't see where they are, are opposites. But I do want to ask you, how will this get reconciled on a political level? Like, what Kelton and Biden, by proxy, are advocating is anathema to the GOP, who will fight this tooth and nail and attempt to poison Americans on the plan as well. How do you sell big government to Americans in 2021 when it has been so badly soiled over the past 40 or so years? Like, what's the new marketing plan to Americans if you're Joe Biden? Well, I think it's in progress. And I think I would tell a slightly different story, which is there has been, as you say, a maligning of government for 40 years. 
But that maligning had real consequences, which was government was defanged, defunded, and delegitimized. It stopped doing as much to help people. Globalization ran amok. The finance industry ran amok. The plutocrats ran amok. And now, 40 years on, uh, Americans are intimately familiar with the depredations of that way of life. And if you look at all the opinion polling, uh, including polling that uh, shown this week on, on some of the Biden plans and taxation and things like that, American public opinion is really moved. Bernie Sanders won 22 states in 2016, a democratic socialist in this country, United States of America. No one thought that was possible. Ran again, had a, won the first three primaries. Elizabeth Warren uh, really dominated the intellectual debate in the 2020 campaign. Uh, a lot of what both of them put forth uh, is now mainstream conventional wisdom in the Democratic Party, even though Joe Biden, a moderate who ran against those ideas, is the president. He's implementing a lot of their philosophy because most people in this country have awoken to the fact that this country was not being run on behalf of freedom or whatever other bullshit the Republicans were spinning. It was being run for rich people. And people now get that. Uh, and I got to say, your former boss helped make flamboyantly obvious what was a little more subtle before. Right. Like the Cokes are subtle. Like if you look at the Koch brothers, it, obviously it is really just for them and their money, but it's complicated. You have to have some, you know, insight, insight into it. You have to read books to understand what the Cokes are really about because they're smart people and they they elaborate on you know the values of freedom and they create libertarian think tanks and they put out ideas. So there's this entire scaffold, intellectual scaffolding that they erect behind which is just their naked desire to make a lot of money. But they actually bother to do the scaffolding. They bother to put out the position papers. They bother to fund the institutes and have the scholars. What was great, what was great about Donald Trump was he was such an imbecile, um, such an intellectual midget that he was unable to create any of that scaffolding, right? He was unable to mask the nudity of his desire for wealth and power. And so I think he did a, he did kind of, decades of work in four years in educating the American public about, you know, what I always say, Plut's going to plute. Plutocrats are going to rep their interests. They're going to do what's good for them. They're going to use every manner of story, uh, the charade that I write about, to, to make you think they're doing it for you. But Donald Trump revealed a truth that Reagan and the Bushes and a million CEOs and others were just too clever to reveal uh, the utter imbecility of Donald Trump, uh, I think turned out to be a real service to the country and combined with some of these other progressive movements, rising inequality, very in the pandemic above all. Uh, you now have public opinion in this country ready, for example, to raise taxes on business in, in this country. And the public right now prefers Biden's plans if they're funded by a tax on business, tax increase on business, to not doing it that way. That is a sea change in American public opinion, uh, and it, it is a sign of the American public waking up to reality. Yeah, and the reality is something that's desperately needed. Here in New York, one of our biggest problems is that we used to have, let's say, 500 billionaires living in Manhattan. And believe it or not, their, their taxes was a line item in the New York state budget. Well, they all picked themselves up and they left to tax haven states like Florida. And 
I mean, there was one guy who left. I think he took two hundred plus million a year with him to the you know to the state of Florida, and now he doesn't have to pay you know the city state uh, the city tax, the state tax. Of course, you don't. You're still paying the federal tax, but you're right. And if you would go a little further for my listeners in terms of you know Biden's theory on what you were talking about in terms of increasing the tax base on these corporations and how it will actually help the 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 government in terms of balancing the budget well i mean i uh, i i'm not as concerned about the deficit as you are clearly but uh biden is somewhere in between us biden is not stephanie kelton for sure uh although he has been influenced by her through the the biden sanders unity task force that she was a member of um so on the rescue plan there was no concern about deficits for the obvious reason that it just needs to be done. It's urgent. People are bleeding. Um, and on the second thing, the build back better, the infrastructure and environment and other things, you know, I think I would be comfortable. I think Stephanie Kelton and others would be comfortable with a similar approach because these investments just so clearly pay for themselves in human flourishing and, and growth and, and possibility. Um, but there, there does seem to be some deficit concern in the administration on this second plan. So they've, you know, proposed to to raise uh, a bunch of the money through this, you know, increasing the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28 percent. Who knows? That's the opening. That's the opening gambit in the negotiation. Who knows, uh, you know, where it'll shake out. But what I was saying before is what is significant is the polling. If you ask the public, as I think Morning Consult did, do you want to do Biden's infrastructure plan? you know, shovel-ready projects, this and that, rebuild the nation, right? Do you want to do that with no tax increases and deficit spending, the supports at a certain level? If you say, do you want to do that but pay for some of it with a raising taxes on business, the support goes up, right? Um, so that's in, in keeping with some of you are, you know, concerned about the deficit. Obviously, a lot of people agree with you in the public. But more importantly, it says to me, this notion, this fraudulent notion that what it, whatever is best for business is best for the public, it's always been a, a con, but it's been an influential con. And the con, people are now seeing through the con. A lot of what I've tried to do in my writing is to help people see through that con. Uh, I think what a lot of the you know, progressive leaders in our politics have tried to do through their electoral work is to help people see through the con. And the con is being seen, see, it's being seen through, you know, and, and I think that's very, very good news. Well, let me ask you this then. It seems that the only way that these programs get passed is if Biden nukes the filibuster. Discuss with me how you see this playing out, because we all know that Mitch McConnell is just a fucking obstructionist. And any plan that Joe Biden, it could be a plan handed down to him like the way God handed down the Ten Commandments to Moses. And Mitch McConnell will do everything in his power to destroy it and and make sure it doesn't pass. If you would, discuss with me how you see this all playing out. Filibuster's got to go. The Jim Crow filibuster is what it should be properly called. Biden himself acknowledged that history. This was a, this was a, you know, a tool uh, employed and perfected by segregationists to preserve segregation and stave off civil rights. It is an ugly and completely undemocratic tactic. It's also the way they do it right now some of the laziest shit I've ever seen. I mean, you don't even have to be there anymore and give a speech. You can just phone that shit in. Well, that's ridiculous, obviously. Um, So there's a question about nuking the filibuster. There's a question about at least making it less of a lazy 
filibuster where you'd have to actually show up and you know stand up and and make your case and be visible as as an obstructionist but i think you know what is interesting about biden like my instinct would be to nuke it right i think what's interesting about biden and maybe why he's president and i'm you know a writer in brooklyn is i think he understands the need to um get the public to a place before you do a thing. I mean, there's some politicians out there who are miles ahead of the public and take pride in being able to pull them along. And I, I admire that. I and mean, I admire that type of politician. I think Bernie Sanders is that type of politician, right? Bernie Sanders is now popular, right? But Bernie Sanders was unpopular, for, you know, except in his state, for a really, really, really long time. And it takes a certain personality to be willing to be unpopular for like 40 years in the hope that people might at some point, listen to you like in your 70s. So you're mild that in that model of leadership, you're just miles ahead of the public. And you're just like, come on, guys, come on, guys, come on, guys. And you're, and you're hoping that they come along with you, but your stomach is, you know, thick enough that if they never come, you're okay with yourself. You're able to live and sleep and be happy. That's a remarkable thing. I think Joe Biden is a different kind of leader who is, you know, two millimeters ahead of the leading edge of public opinion as opposed to three miles, right? He like, and I think it's possible to be judgmental about that and say that's someone who follows, po you know, focus groups or polls or, you know, I think we're often actually very dismissive about that in American life. And I, I get it. I've been dismissive about that. But I think with Biden, what it gets you is someone who is very sensitive to what the public can be persuaded to believe and what they can't. And someone who is generally except on certain issues, generally not willing to stick his neck out, uh, you know, for fear that, like, it gets, uh, like, it gets clobbered. Um, so on the filibuster, my sense is he's ripening the issue, right? And what I mean by ripening the issue is uh, no, there's no standstill that has happened yet this year in his presidency, because of the filibuster, right? So if you're a random person out there in Kansas, you might not feel like your life is being harmed by this thing because the rescue plan happened, you got your check, child relief thing happened, infrastructure seems like it may happen. When something big, whether it's the infrastructure, whether it's the you know Voting Rights for the People Act, something important, that the public believes is important comes up and it is stopped. It's clear that it could happen, but for this thing, right? Um, the issue will ripen. And my intuition would be, and I have no inside information here, my intuition would be a politician like Biden is going to wait for that issue to ripen and wait for the public to be there, wait for the public's frustration to grow so that it becomes a little push he's got to give off the cliff uh, instead of having to like carry that entire lift himself. Well, I mean, I see Biden as somebody who's extremely cautious because he's trying to get it right. Let's, let's not forget that the last four years under the Trump administration has been nothing less than chaotic. Every single day there was chaos and he enjoyed sowing the chaos because that's the way he used to run the Trump organization as well. Everything was always chaos. So I just see Joe as trying to 
I think he's just trying to bring some peace and calm to America. And I think he's trying to use an ideology that just seems right, it smells right, it sounds right, whereas Trump only operated from one place. He went with what he thought was the popularist view. So if the popularist view is to keep foreigners out of the country, he took it to an nth degree and started locking up people and separating children because he thought it was a popularist view that would get him reelected. And then people don't realize this, what January 6th really was, which was the insurrection. It was even more than an insurrection. It was Donald Trump's feeble attempt at trying to take over the Capitol to basically to take over government so that he could reinstate himself as a de facto president, very much what you see dictators and autocrats do in foreign countries. Something about that? Because of one, of, one of the things that I am always was always confused by with Trump is, I, you know, and I've talked to scholars about this. Did he have any conscious awareness of the history of dictatorships, autocrats. Like, it was just his instincts that led the country in this fascistic, autocratic direction? Or was he aware of the playbook of autocrats? Did he study it? Did he think about things like coups and think about things like, like, was it explicit in his mind and in his conversations? Okay, that's a great question. And I'll give you the simple answer to it. Donald Trump's never read a book in his life. And that includes when he was a child growing up all the way through college. Um, he never read a book in his life. So he does not— He had not, difficulty reading, didn't he? Didn't he have like a, some— dif- um, he, just has, he just has ADD. So if you don't give him the abridged version, the cliff note version, in under 60 seconds, you lose his attention. Even if it was on a big real estate deal, it didn't matter. Everything was broken down for him. And sometimes you had to come back and see him on multiple occasions because he didn't want to spend too much time on any given topic unless it was about golf, right, or sports, which he actually knows quite a bit more than what you would believe. But going back to your question, he didn't study it like you would study it. If you really wanted to write a thesis paper and get an A in your class, then you would know it. He's watched enough television, he's spoken to enough dictators to understand what it was that got them to power. And he then simplifies it into the most basic of issues, which is how to take control. Well, he always knows, uh, and he's seen it, whether it's on television or in movies, that the first thing you got to do is you have to take the military. You need the military on your side. But do you ever think well, he had he a serious he plan to do that with the military? No. It wasn't the military that he was looking for. It was his MAGA warriors, which is why he was so excited when he saw them in you know, um, military gear, basically you know, um, floating out. military forces. Yes. Um, you know, with the 2020 Trump flag or the MAGA flags, that to him was his army. And his goal was to use the you know, civilian, we'll call him paramilitary army, in order to take over the capital and basically declare himself as our dictator, as our new monarch. That's what he always wanted to be. He never wanted to be president of the United States. He wanted to be its dictator. And he enjoyed, rest assured, and this I'm telling you from firsthand knowledge, he enjoyed the power 
of the office of the presidency, but not the way that, say, President Biden or, or Bush or Clinton or any of the other predecessor presidents. He saw it as a dictator's power, which is why he was running amok with his executive powers, which is why he ran amok with the pardon power. This is his power. You're not going to take it from me. And I want to remain this powerful being, right, for all eternity, and then possibly pass it along to one of his scion. That's what he was really looking for. So people don't understand just how close to shredding our democracy that Donald Trump brought us, which is crazy. Can I, this is the, uh, I apologize, but this is the interviewer in me. Um, You know, you were credited uh, by some people with writing a lot of books came out by people associated with him, but I think you were credited with writing one of the more self-aware ones and, and one of the ones that like looked at yourself with more honesty than a lot of people have, or instead of going straight to reality TV or whatever the Conway family is doing. Um, how have you thought about, not just from a criminal justice point of view, but from a life point of view, how have you thought about atonement as a life project um, given what you were part of? Well, every day I try to do something right. I try to make amends with not just my wife, my daughter, my son, but the country as well, which is why I have invested in excess of 300 hours of providing information to various different congressional committees, law enforcement um, agencies with no benefit So people say, oh, well, Cohen turned on Trump in order to get a benefit for himself. I have neither asked for a benefit nor received any benefit whatsoever. That's my way of atoning for what I did in terms of bringing Donald Trump to the office of the presidency. Now, I do want to say that my story is not fully known. And that was one of the reasons why I wrote Disloyal, because there are things in that happened that people don't truly know about and people didn't really want to know. When reporters used to call me and they used to ask me questions about the government's uh, reply papers when I was being indicted, well, actually, I wasn't even indicted. I just pled guilty in 48 hours. It's an unheard of scenario where you find out on a Friday night at 5.30 that you need to come in on Monday to plead guilty for the first time hearing anything. And despite the allegations of tax evasion, which never happened, or the um, misrepresentation to a bank, which never happened, the one nice thing that Judge Pauly, um, who was the sentencing judge, acknowledged, there's no economic crime. I didn't owe any bank or any individual a dollar ever in my life. Right. So the story is not fully known, but people were more interested in Donald Trump's sexual relationship with Stormy Daniels than they were about reading about my my sentencing um, document, my pre-sentencing report. So I used to get angry at many of the journalists and say, well, don't you read my papers too? Why are you only reading the government, which is painting me in the absolute worst possible light, as if, in fact, that like Paul Manafort, I had money overseas. I never had a dollar overseas. So I, 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 this just came to my mind. It was a long time ago, but I actually read something in your, you know, as you know, my, my, 
my book, Winners Take All, is about the uses and kind of weaponization of philanthropy and charity to protect the interests of the rich and the powerful. And well, we're going to get to your book. That's, no, but, that's but, the rest. That's going to be the rest. Of, that's that's my no, next but, question. But it's to actually you. related to what you were just saying. Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here, and we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode: the Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics. So if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, you have to check it out. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Check out last Thursday's incredible Part 2 episode with master counterfeiter Frank Barassa. Considered the world's greatest, he once made and used over $250 million in U.S. currency. I also found time to catch up on some old episodes and listen to the December 20, 2020 interview with Blackstone CEO Stephen Schwarzman, a fascinating look into one of the world's most powerful men. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. So search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You probably don't even know this because I, I don't know how much you follow like that specific topic. But in your, I don't know if it was a sentencing document or something, the judge made a statement in your case that actually was viewed in some of these philanthropy you know, circles as a very significant uh, statement, which was th- this notion that, that giving back can actually be a more complicated thing, is not just a good thing, uh, is mixed, can be weaponized. People are talking about it more and more, but even in the legal system, it continues to be like a way of getting credit. And the judge in your case was like, actually had, a, I don't know if you remember, but has a statement specifically about philanthropy and charity. Um, and it was a very, in some ways, a very um, uh, forward thinking statement about how philanthropy can serve as a cover and a distraction and should not be considered in a criminal justice process. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Well, what he was referring to is the hundreds of letters that were sent in in support of my request for leniency as a, as a sentence. And while he acknowledged, I mean, I sat on, um, you know, the board of trustees for a private school in the city where over my tenure, I was part of a group that helped to put 1,100 kids through school with that, that would not have been able to have afforded. I was involved in the raising of millions of dollars, many millions of dollars. Uh, and this was actually with Eric Trump, by the way, with his Eric Trump Foundation, which solely benefited St. Jude Children's Hospital. Um, and that's just to name a few. Well, if Eric Trump was involved. Look, there are many things that we can say about him, because and, and they're all true, but anybody that raises 
or helps to raise millions of dollars for children with cancer, I'll give them a pass on that. I don't give them a pass on anything else, but that part I'm going to give them a pass on. Um, but, 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 but I mean, I, I, th- I wrote the book to try to convince you that you shouldn't give them a pass on that either. Why well, do you think he? Right, why do you but, think he did that? You mean he cares I don't about know kids? the reason why. You know, I don't know the answer as to why. And sometimes so that's that's what we're here to talk about. I'm happy to explain. Right, that. but sometimes to me, it doesn't even. I don't even care whether he was doing it for selfish reasons or not. Uh, the bottom line is there was no money taken from that charity. Uh, it had a very low uh, expense. Nobody took money from it. It all went to sick children. That's the wrong so lens. What happens it, is it might be you, you give a, you give a, you give some money to the kids with cancer. Those those kids actually do benefit. That's true, right? And what you do with that is you launder your reputation if you're someone like Eric Trump, who's part of a crime family that's trying to turn the United States into a crime family. It launders your reputation. It allows you to have cover in business, in politics, in whatever area of your life you want to go on. And then on an infinitely grander scale, you, your, your father becomes president, right? And what ha- whatever happens to healthcare funding, whatever happens to hospitals, whatever happens to any number of aspects of our system where, yeah, great, you raised a couple million dollars for someone, and now there's billions of dollars fewer in expenditures on any number of good causes, right? And so we have to get a lot smarter about generosity not being a substitute for justice, philanthropy not being a substitute um, for actually being a good person, uh, and kind of personal kindnesses um, not being a substitute for systemic kindness. Okay. And with that, I'm going to jump straight into your book, right? I think it's a good, it's a good segue. In your book, Winners Take All, which is the elite charade of changing the world, you chronicled much of the economic disparity that has become evident during the pandemic as billionaires from whether it's Elon Musk to Mark Zuckerberg have seen record profits. In a recent Washington Post article, you were quoted as saying that while millions are out of work and being evicted, the billionaire class thrived and prospers as they seldom have in any year. Discuss with me how you see this all playing out within the Biden administration, both for big tech platforms and in, you know, for the individuals like Zuckerberg and Musk. And in your mind, what do you think should happen? I mean, I, I will actually explain the broader argument by unpacking the thing you and I were just talking about, because it's a perfect example. What has happened in our time is very much analogous, not identical, but analogous to what happened with Eric Trump doing some charity for a cancer hospital while he and his family completely defraud the United States as a business model at every level of their life, pre-politics and certainly in politics and certainly post-politics. The Trumps are as you know, extreme. They take a lot of things that were going on already in American life and they dramatize them. They exaggerate them. They don't often seem to have the the savvy to mask things the way other powerful people at least have a little bit of savvy to conceal, which makes the Trumps very useful in that way. But you can look at this whole age as being captured by that kind of duality of Eric Trump giving to a cancer hospital and defrauding the country as a business model on an infinitely greater scale. So what has happened 
everywhere you look, you got the equivalents of the Eric Trump donations to the cancer hospital. You got everybody giving away money at that top tier. All of them have foundations. All of the companies do corporate social responsibility. They have some, every big company in America has some day where all the employees wear a matching t-shirt and dig something with a shovel. I'm not sure how that helps people, Um, but they all do it. They all do it. And you have all kinds of new ways in which we are told wealthy people and corporations can change the world, right? Elon Musk says he's accumulating resources to make civilizational, civilization interplanetary, big ambition. Um, you have people saying, I can, Mark Zuckerberg saying, you know, I can get rid of all the world's diseases. It's a real, real thing he and his wife allegedly set out to do. Um, you got Gates taking on public health abroad, uh, taking on uh, education in this country, pushing common core through without a real democratic process, and so on and so forth. So they're all doing this. And what I became curious about as a reporter is, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? Coincidence that the same era that has seen all these people doing all these nice things, think of the couple million dollars for the cancer hospital that Eric Trump gave, multiply that out by an entire class of people doing the same thing, some more, some less, some more serious work, some less serious work, but all basically doing that kind of philanthropy. How come that coincides? How come that coincides with an age in which that same class of people, and in many cases, the literal same dudes, are over here behind the curtain screwing the society, screwing the same people, the same communities, right? They, they, they're, they're pushing to deregulate the chemical companies that are giving those kids cancer. They're pushing against the kind of health insurance that would allow those kids to get regular checkups. They're pushing against the kind of minimum wage increases that would allow those kids' parents to spend more time with them in the final year of their life. They're pushing against the kind of education system that would give more of those kids, should they survive cancer, the chance to go to medical school themselves and avenge their cancer when when they grow up. Those same people, of whom Eric Trump is just a flamboyant, exaggerated example, are donating over here. And in their lobbying, in their tax avoidance, in their tax evasion, in their uh, manipulation of lawmakers to whom they donate, and so on and so forth, They are the causes of the very problems they are laterally seeking to solve. They are arsonists who have the gall to set ablaze without mercy, without worry, without compunction, walk away from the scene. They buy a fireman costume, come back an hour later, on the sight of the blaze. They're like, oh my God, what a shame, this fire. What a sh- what an absolute shame. This is a shame. I am ashamed of this fire. Let me help. In fact, let me, let me help. But in fact, no, don't just let me help. In fact, all you other firefighters go away. Let me lead the fire brigade. Let me. Because, you know, as your, as your boss, Donald Trump, so eloquently said, only I can fix it, right? I caused the problems, therefore I can solve the problems. That basic move of Donald Trump is actually the move of plutocracy in general. 
I broke the system so I can fix it. I started the fire so I'm the best firefighter. I caused the American dream to die so I can bring opportunity back to this country. It's not just the Eric Trumps and the Donald Trumps and the other flamboyant, unsubtle, tacky uh, avatars of philanthrocapitalism who do this. Those are just the obvious ones because they have no skills of concealment, as I said. It is a pretty straight line from their approach to Jamie Dimon's approach or Elon Musk's approach or Bill Gates's approach. Even someone like Bill Gates, who does really good work, is fundamentally part of a class that does not want our biggest shared problems to be solved through democracy, does not want wealth to be rebalanced in this country, does not want something like a wealth tax. Fundamentally, they want to fight to improve this society in any way except one that would threaten their position on top of the system. Except somewhere along the line, I remember reading somewhere that Bill Gates is intending to donate the vast majority of his wealth back to various different you know, charities and put it already into a charitable trust. So, and even take, let, instead, let's break down Elon Musk, because I'm always fascinated stick by Elon Musk. We, we got to stick with that for a second. First of all, even though he's, Gates has done that, he's still getting richer every year, right? I mean, these people make so much money in returns that they can't give it away fast enough. Second of all, I want you to hear what I'm saying. Philanthropy is not the same as taxation. Philanthropy is a vastly inferior way of solving public problems than taxation, right? And it's really important to unpack this. You were talking about fundraising for schools, Eric Trump at the camps. I mean, I, I, I wrote the book precisely because I think most people probably have the intuition that you have. So I, I think it's worth spending time on. Most people listening to this may have the intuition you have, but I think it's not a correct intuition, respectfully. And I, and I, and I want to unpack it. When we, if, if you have a problem with your lawn, that's a private problem. You got to figure out how to fix your lawn. You got to spend some money to get some weed killer, whatever you got to do. That, that's on you. Okay. There's a lot of private problems in our country. And private solutions are great for those. But then there's another category of problem that are not private problems. Okay. The education of the nation's children is a public problem. It's a shared problem. No one is powerful enough to solve that problem alone. Right. It's a systemic problem. The problem of clean water is a public problem. The problem of how you deal with 400 years of the plunder and disenfranchisement of black Americans and related problems like the racial wealth gap, et cetera. It's a shared problem. There's, there's no, as the feminists taught us to say, there is no private solutions to problems like that. There's no personal solutions to problems like that. You can't lean in your way out of that. You can't rise up your way out of that. The only solution to problems like that is democratic public democratic solution to solve those problems for anybody. That's for everybody. That's how, like, we didn't get, you know, little kids' fingers used to be the key to America's factories, right? We didn't get those little kids' fingers out of the factories through private generosity or factory owners waking up one day in a better mood. We passed a law to make it illegal. We didn't get weekends because bosses suddenly thought, Maybe people should have Saturday and Sunday off. We didn't get a minimum wage because people thought voluntarily, let me pay someone a, a living where they can eat. Um, we didn't get 
the right to unionize from any of these things. We didn't get public schools from any of because rich people wanted to throw scraps. So the fact that we have a any kind of basic decency in the society is built on the fact that we have created common institutions, democratic institutions that are funded by taxation, that are funded by the United States or by states or cities, and that more importantly are created by us through a process through which we vote, we talk about it, we argue about it, the way you and I are talking on a podcast. This is part of the democratic process. People are going to listen to this. People are going to form their own opinion, leave comments. That's all. That's why? Why do we do that? Why, why are you asking about Biden's infrastructure bill? Because that's actually how democracy works. We talk about it. We figure it out. People will listen to this and think, do they agree with you on the deficit? Do they agree with me? Then they'll vote accordingly. That's a democratic process. When Bill Gates, who was at the very good end of the spectrum of these people compared to a lot of these people, um, but when Bill Gates is basically deciding what America's education policy should be, I'm sorry. I don't care if he's right. I don't care if he's a good man. I don't care... If he's humble, I don't care. I don't care if he's donating most of his fortune. He has no right to decide what your kid's education will be like. He has no right any more than I just. The I'm Queen not sure, though. Right, but not, I'm not sure that he's deciding. I think what well, he's I am. doing. I've done the reporting, and I'm pretty sure that he is deciding. And right, people who work I for think him, he's making. I think he's making recommendations in terms of what he thinks or how he thinks, and if it's his money that's going in. Like for me, when I was saying, if I didn't help to fundraise with the other group of the on the executive board, there would have been 1,100 kids over that 10-year period that would not have gotten the education that they did, to which none of us received any benefit other than it made us feel good. You know, the, the, the people who do fundraising for private schools in New York who put those 1,100 kids to school, I don't know the particular school and I don't know the particular people in question, but I'm going to make a really good guess, okay? I'm going to make a really strong guess here that a lot of those people who did that fundraising are highly problematic people, right? Problematic in a way that helped destroy the opportunity structure for those same 1,100 people in other ways, right? Let me, let me explain. Uh, where a lot of those, let me, here, let, me, let me just make a couple guesses. Were a lot of those people Wall Street people by chance? Finance people? There were some. There were some. So, so let's just stick with that, right? Because we, we know the profile of affluent folks in New York. There's a lot of finance people in, in this town. Those people, whether they're in private equity Right? If they're in private equity, it's hard to think that they haven't in, been involved in the kind of vulture capitalism that takes over companies, levers them up with debt, forces them to do layoffs, switch defined benefit pensions to flexible pensions, turns employees into contractors. You're familiar with the playbook that most private equity companies like KKR and others follow when right? – and, and we know there's, there's no need for you and I to dispute it. There's big studies out there that show conclusively – what these firms do, right? So now think, just, I'm, I'm going to do micro examples because it's easier to understand. Let's say there's some private equity guy in that group of people fundraising at that school, and that person can now take credit out of those 1,100. That person maybe can take credit himself for 100 of those kids, right? Let's just, I'm just making up numbers here. He gave some money, raised some money, raised some money among his finance colleagues. He got 100 kids through school. Now, first of all, I bet that person's telling everybody they got 100 kids through school. But let's just stick with that. Now, what has that person been doing in their day job that gave them that money and gave them that networks, right? They've been doing multi-billion dollar, multi-million dollar deals, right? They have been 
in their day job, not in their side hustle of virtue for a private school, in their day job, they've been creating the kind of America in which those 1,100 kids' parents have to work three jobs instead of one, right? Because you used to be able to work one job in this country, uh, as you know, and now a lot of the parents of those 1,100 kids probably work two or three, and between two parents maybe work two or four or five or six jobs as a household just to be able to have dignity. It may be that some of those folks work for um, the kind of private equity firms that have tried to buy up housing and you know, create predatory uh, evictions and things like that. I don't know. I'm, 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 you're, 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 I, I, get, I get your I get your thesis. But listen right, to what but I'm I get your th- I get your thesis, but unfortunately, right, this is where, you know, let's just say that we'll different um, in terms of opinion. Not everybody has bad, you know, bad thoughts in terms of, you know, everybody who donates money to a school is not looking to take the homes of the people that they're helping whose children are going through. But this, this really brings me but this really brings me to my final question. Are you interested in, in me actually explaining this? Just give me a give me a chance. Uh, I, I am. I am. Well, then give me a chance to finish. If you look at, again, I'm, I'm bringing it down to individuals because it's easier to see, but you have to understand, and I'll tell you as some, having done the research on this, this is happening really as a class of people, thousands and thousands of people, tens of thousands of people at the very top doing this to millions of people. But I'm trying to make it a story so it's easy to see. And you're right, it's not every single person, but I'm only making it about an individual so you can see it, right? So you would have finance people in New York who, whether they're in private equity, whether they're in hedge funds, whether they're in institutions that are lobbying for financial deregulation, which made the 2008-2009 crash. You're familiar with that history, right? Like the 2008 crisis didn't happen by itself. It was lobbied for, right? Glass-Steagall was gotten rid of. There's a history. People did that lobbying. That lobbying didn't just happen. Banks did it, right? Well, who are the people who raise money for private schools in New York City? It's those same people, right? It's those same institutions, right, by and large. And, and it's others. It's people who work in the chemical industry and deregulate chemicals. And it's, I'm not saying it's only those people. I'm trying to give you a focused example. So then what happens when someone who has done for let's say 20 years, if you're imagining school age, school age kids, high school age kids, what happens when for someone who's done you know, multi-billion dollar deals over 20 years, many of which have the kinds of effects that any economist will tell you has happened, uh, promoting rising inequality, uh, promoting uh, government lack of resources, promoting um, the kinds of precarity in wages, precarity in employment, promoting the kind of gutting of pensions that we know has happened because of high finance. Do you think someone who's raising one or two or five million dollars or ten million dollars for private school, do you think they're remotely breaking even? Not even that this is the right calculus, but do you think they're remotely breaking even with the effect you would have had on the country through? 10 or 20 years of work at a private equity firm operating in the billions, right? You are at the most, at the most, if you're one of those people, you are living a life that is, and I'm not saying it's with malice. A lot of these people are completely ignorant about what they're doing, but you are living a life that is predicated on making the society work worse for most people and better for you and your friends and your family. And then you are taking 
a fraction of the scraps of the proceeds from a fraudulent existence and donating it to a few people who, yes, will themselves benefit. It is true. And then you are weaponizing or your class is weaponizing those donations to five or 10 or 100 people to help perpetuate a system that makes life bleak for 100 million people, right? And if you can understand that, you begin to understand the charade that I write about that has defined this economy, this society, um, and the so-called American dream for the last 40 years. So it sounds to me also then you could even stretch this to the guy who owns the fast food restaurant because nothing is killing Americans worse than some of this fast food with the obesity, with the high fat content, with the salt, etc. And, and by the way, it's not only the, the food content with them. Through the National Restaurant Association, those firms lobby against the minimum wage. They lobby to undermine and make Obamacare as threadbare as possible. And, and, and then you know what they do. They, they make little playgrounds. Right. But under your theory, under your theory, I could pretty much do this with virtually every single business and every single industry, which brings me to my final question. You don't think for there's you any businesses that don't exist to, uh, with harming people? I think there's I think no, there's I think no, I think that there's probably no business, including the local florist, that I would say that we can't come up with a scenario like yours. However, you think as the we're local closing florist down, as, is as, comparable as, yeah. to the way private equity? Sure, because sure, because what happens is they're using all sorts of pesticides in order to grow the various different flowers, and the pesticides are destroying the earth, which of course goes into the water supply. I mean, we could take the same, but as we as we're just dragging down to the last but minute, I want to give you the final power. The local. I know. The florist no, I, does not have power over the system. The local florist is, is, is paying their taxes or not, but they're not helping to set tax policy. The local florist is not helping to govern America privately, which the plutocrats I'm talking about, the finance people I'm talking about through those institutions, they are. Well, so as we finish up the hour, you know, because and this is a very overly broad question, which really goes to the thesis of your book and your views in terms of what we've been discussing in terms of inequality in the system. Should billionaires even exist at all? What do you think after spending time in that world? Well, I've, no, I've known many of them. Um, I find them to be no different in many respects than somebody who's not a billionaire or not even a millionaire. Then there are others who are as obnoxious you know, as anybody that I've ever met that's also not a billionaire. Uh, I, I find that many of the billionaires, in my, in my opinion, which of course does not comport with your book, um, you know, are doing very good things. But I'm somewhat afraid. I'm afraid of this inequality um, in terms of income disparity, whereby you have people who are worth in excess of $100 billion. Uh, after a certain number, the truth is the only person, or I should say the only institution that could stop that individual if they were really bad people would be the United States government because they could use their financial power to basically destroy almost anybody on this planet. And so I do have my fears. How many times has even the United States government been able to have accountability for any of those people? When was the last time one of those people in that league was able to have just, I mean, you're right that the U.S. government would be the leading candidate. But when has that even happened? Well, I know, I know several billionaires that were brought to justice and they were fined very substantial. 
for relatively small things. Mark Mark Zuckerberg Mark Zuckerberg has essentially made it his personal career project to undermine American democracy, right? And he's just rolling along, right? Yeah, people they may they may catch someone on this or catch someone on that, but the people who are truly bent on the destruction of this society, right? Um, the Murdochs, the Zuckerbergs, etc. They they walk free. Uh, they hobnob with world leaders. They are treated by the media uh, still, in many cases, as heroes and sages. And I think the conversation we've had today is important because I think you come to this conversation with a lot of intuitions about, well, at least some of these nice things these people do are, you know, you'll take the nice thing. I mean, maybe there's problems or not. I'm trying to help you see uh, what I see, which is, and what I've tried to report, which is that this is not about individuals. What you observed up close and wrote your book about was one particular guy and one particular family. But what I'd love for you to see, love to persuade you of, is that Donald Trump was a biopsy, right? He was a biopsy into a very diseased body politic. And if your lesson from Trumpism is Donald Trump, bad man, not paying attention to the system that made him possible, and in many ways, he was a metaphor for oligarchic power in general. And the other oligarchs, as you point out, some of them are handsomer than him. Some of them are better at sports than him. Some of them are nicer than him. Some of them are less nice than him. Some of them are more fascist than him. Some of them are less fascist than him. Some of them are richer than him. Some of them are poorer than him. Some of them actually have foundations that do real good. Some of them kind of have fake ones like him. It doesn't matter. They are part of a class that did exactly, in a sense, what Donald Trump did to America, which is exist in a way where they fundamentally view the people and institutions of the United States as existing to serve their interests and don't view themselves as just one more citizen in a democracy, but view themselves as a ruling elite that deserves to have this country function for them. And if it means that people will be immiserated, will be evicted, will be unhoused, will be hungry, will have a lack of education, will not be able to realize their dreams, so be it. Because that is the return on their investment. That is their IPO. That is their payout. That's their payoff. And we either muster the courage to end that system as a whole for everybody and learn to not make it about individuals, or we give up and say, let's just... Let's just become an oligarchy. You know, I'm just not sure it's possible when you have a democracy and we're a capitalistic country to accomplish that. But in, I really want to thank you. And I do really, truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for uh, having me. You got it. Be well. And now for today's mea culpa. I have to admit that I was in a dark mood yesterday when I wrote much of this introduction. The killing of another Capitol Police officer, William Evans, really sent me into a spiral. Watching its aftermath unfold on live television, I became re-traumatized from the events of January 6th. I often hold the Latin, or at least hold in that part of me that emits fear and anguish. But this show, at its core, is about the search for truth. If I were to deliver to you another tongue-in-cheek episode that gleefully detailed the latest in Matt Getz's sex trafficking investigation, I wouldn't be living up to my promise of nothing but the truth. So I'll be honest, I'm really struggling. 
Besides everything I mentioned yesterday, there's the other aspect which I don't talk as much about. My own incarceration and home confinement. I recently filed a petition for rid of habeas corpus over my own case that if the judge found in my favor would have ended my sentence four months ago. I could be outside right now walking with my wife through Central Park, but that did not happen and we're still waiting for a decision. The Department of Justice, or as I like to call them, the Department of Injustice, found a way to keep me locked up. What they do is they just run the clock on you until the time that you would have been released anyway. I plan to dedicate an entire episode to the whole saga shortly. It will also be the focus of my next book. Anyways, that has me really down. When you free yourself in your mind and it turns out that it's not to be, it's hard to put yourself back behind bars, metaphorically, of course, speaking. I had placed a lot of hope there, then pile on everything else that is happening, and I'm very, very tired. Most days I can carry the load. But yesterday, watching what was happening again in the Capitol, I just lost it and I started shouting, Fuck it! Enough! It's fucking enough! But today is a new day, the sun is shining, I'm alive, my family is healthy, and the world somehow keeps turning. Hopefully you're finding the good in all of this as well. And thanks for listening. Maya Culper is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up, in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen, produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick, and executive producer Jared Gustad. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth. again? Uh, 1240. Down at the end. Ooh, what's that? Sammy, don't touch that. That's someone's old food. Here we are. Do you have the key? You have both of ours. Oh, right. Not working. Rub it. Come on. Try flipping it over. Seriously. Why can't we go inside? Just honey, let me try. Uh, I'm tired. Give me yours. You have mine. All right. What? Please, if you Dad, could just... Why aren't you opening hey, the honey, door? Can everyone just shut the... Don't go there. Go on a real vacation. Go RVing.